Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today we have as our guest, Lisa Sherman. She is the president and chief executive officer of the Ad Council. Lisa, who's been a friend for decades, is also an innovative leader and an accomplished operating executive with deep experience in the private and nonprofit sectors. She has had over 35 years of experience building and transforming and growing organizations. As president and CEO of the Ad Council, she leads all aspects of this national institution, working at the intersection of media, marketing, technology, entertainment, and advertising. The Ad Council convenes the world's best marketers to create public engagement campaigns by leveraging this cutting edge product and approaching digital technologies in a creative way. The organization tackles the most pressing issues facing the country, and we're going to talk about that today. But first, welcome to The Caring Economy, Lisa Sherman. Toby, it's great to be here, and thank you for having me. So we go so far back. I know you better than my 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 listeners. So give us a sort of a two-minute digest of Lisa Sherman, sort of where you were born, how you were raised, educated. Now you're a proud Dickinson alumna, and how you got your career start. So I was born and raised in Philadelphia to a, probably a middle-class family. My dad had his own business, which was uh, with his brothers. So that was very much a part of our lives. And we would all work there on the weekends uh, to help out and make extra money. Um, I was a huge Philadelphia sports fan because we came from a very big sports family, played sports growing up. So I went off to Dickinson College um, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. I think I finally figured that out. It took a long time. So right out of college, I I really thought, you know, I know business a little bit because of my family's business. And so I just jumped into an opportunity to work at the time for what we called the telephone company. We know it today as Verizon. You know, I was there. I, I thought I would be there for a few years and move on. But what I realized when I got there and at that time, and you may remember this too, people would join companies and stay for decades, often retiring there. And I just assumed that that would be my trajectory. But about 17 years in, a number of things happened. um, And I just decided that it was time for me to try something new. And so I actually went completely the other way. I left this company where I'd been for 17 years. I was I'd climbed the corporate ladder. I was in the marketing organization. I was running brand management and advertising. And I jumped into starting my own company um, as an entrepreneur, because as I mentioned, uh, sports was in my blood. I love sports. In about the year 1999, women's sports was really on the rise. The WNBA had just started. The WUSA, the women's soccer team, had just won the gold in, in the Olympics and I'd seen many young girls growing up playing sports like I did, but it was it was much more of a thing in 2000. And I just thought, you know, I love marketing and I love sports and I want to bring these two things together because I know that marketers use sports to reach men all the time. Mm-hmm. Why not create a concept where we could use marketing and sports to reach the people who are making most of the decisions or influencing most of the decisions in the household. And those are women 
right. and, and the kids that they raise. And so we founded a company called the Women's Sports Network. It was a marketing services company where we brought brands together with, with sports properties and athletes. And it was such a rush because for the first time in my life, I really was able to marry something I cared deeply about and was very influential in my life, sports, with the craft that I'd come to love, marketing. And we went out and raised venture money and did all kinds of fun things. And it was going along pretty well until, sadly, 9-11, 2001, when the world changed, everybody pulled back, and the investments and the investors felt like we just couldn't see a path any further to profitability. So sadly, we had to shut our company down. But I will tell you, it was the most influential experience of my career up until that point, um, the scrappiness and the entrepreneurial energy and loving what I did in a different way. I went from there to an ad agency, ultimately got called about uh, a really unique opportunity to launch and lead the very first LGBTQ cable network called Logo TV that was being launched by Viacom. And it was another one of those things you get the call and you're like, I'm not sure I, I don't even know anything about TV. I'm a marketer. But I took the interview and they convinced me that they needed me to build a brand, to be uh, the brand ambassador, to develop the infrastructure and put all the pieces in place. And the TV part, like making television, I could learn. And I was working for a guy who knew more about TV and making television successfully than, you know, almost anybody on the planet. And so I had the real privilege of leading and launching this very unique um, cable network uh, for an audience that has always been underserved on television. It took that idea of marrying something I care deeply about with the work that I like to do to a, a very different level. I was there for nine years. Um, and we built that business from, on the day we launched, we had three advertisers to probably well over a hundred advertisers. When I left, we were in, I don't know, 15 million homes. And we were, went at the, at the start of our launch and nine years later, we were probably in 60 million homes. So we had really built the business, but I got a call then another call from another recruiter, um, <laughs> who was talking about. Uh, an opportunity to be the CEO of the Ad Council. And I knew a little bit about the Ad Council, but not a lot. But I had a very visceral reaction. I, I literally have said, I felt like lightning went through my body. Like, this is the job I have to have next. Yeah, this is for you. Um, because as, I, as you know, and as I've said, I've always been very purpose-driven and I'm very, it's sort of a core value of mine to really do what I can to help make the world better in whatever big or small ways that is. And I thought the opportunity to do that at the Ad Council would just be an extraordinary gift and an honor. And it actually, now that I know a little bit about the Ad Council and we can talk about it, you know, we bring together the industry, ad agencies, media companies, and brands to use their superpowers for good and I had just spent my entire career at brands, media companies, and agencies. And I thought it's all coming together in this moment. And so luckily enough, I landed the gig and I've been here for seven years. Amazing how time flies. I can remember <laughs> the logo way back when. And 
Gosh, time flies. Uh, so I want to ask you uh, one question about the women's uh, sports marketing and then about logo. On the women's sports marketing, remind me or educate us a little bit. Title IX, wasn't that really coming into the fore then? Was that the... So uh, Title IX is uh, 50 years old this right. year, I believe. Um, so it was it was post-Title IX, but women's sports had really not caught on. Women were still in my view, second-class citizens. I remember when I was at Dickinson, I played basketball and there was one gym and one basketball court. And the guys always got the great practice time slot and we had to wait for them to be finished. You know, our games had to come when they weren't playing. So yes, technically women were playing sports. Title IX required that. uh, But there were many, many differences. Yeah. So I, I suspect though, over time that's helped elevate or lift the interest and the participation and raise awareness because we're still seeing that equalization. It is moving in the right direction. I think you would agree, but wow. We're still it is. Not, yeah. I mean, this year has been a great year for women's sports. You know, there are, you know, the, the, the few women who are, you know, in the women's soccer league, I mean, they push for pay equity and, and got it for the first time ever. And you're seeing, you know, that happening uh, across the board. I think tennis has equal equal prize money for men and women, yeah. but, you know, there's still more to do. Yeah. And then, uh, and thank you for your leadership on that. Um, so then the question about Flogo is, um, you know, it was, although part of Viacom, a big global conglomerate, it's very niche, right? LGBTQ broadcasting or content. Did you ever fear that you might paint yourself into corner that you'd always be, oh, that gay girl, or you'd never get out of that? Well, it's so interesting, Toby, because, um, you know, one of the reasons that I left the telephone company was because I was closeted and I didn't feel comfortable being out. I was out in every other part of my life. I was out to many of my friends at the company, but it wasn't broadly known. And so I like to joke that I left one company because I wasn't comfortable being gay. And then I became a professional lesbian at Logo. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't feel like I would be painted into a corner because I was, you know, it's just one aspect of who I am. And I I think I was hired because I was a good executive and a good leader. And it just happened to be for this particular cable network. You know, I didn't really worry about that too much. The other sort of narrative I see in your your life, you know, they say of entrepreneurs, you you find a need, a uh, a vacancy or a, a place for opportunity. So you were with the women in sports, you saw a need for this underserved population. With Logo TV, you saw this underserved population. You go to the ad council and we'll talk about it in a bit. You're serving up content on important societal issues of the day where people need help, right? So is that a constant theme for you? You say, you know, you you, you definitely are a purpose-driven person, but would you say you're also, you've got the sensibility or the nose to find that opportunity of underserved communities or organizations? You know, I've, never really, I've never really thought about that. I, I think I'm always looking for opportunities to do more. So companies to do more, and maybe that is identifying a an, an unmet need. I do have sort of an entrepreneurial uh, wired into my DNA. I mean, even at the ad council, I mean, the ad council has been around for over 80 years now and there's always ways to do more. There's always ways to do better. You know, there's always ways to have greater impact and take the best of the, the legacy and, and move it into the, sure. you know, into the future. 
I'm going to pay you a compliment. I think uh, you maybe I'm projecting, but I think you you advocate for the underdog. So yes, you always want to do more, but you want to do more for those who probably don't have the same opportunity, right? You could do the same kind of work harder, faster, better to make more money at Goldman Sachs, but you decided yeah. not to do that, right? So there's sure. a little bit of altruism in that, I think. Tell us a little bit about the Ad Council. It's it's known to me. It's known to many Americans. You say it's 80 years old. Give our, our listeners a sense of what it's about. The, the backstory is quite interesting. Um, and it was founded over 80 years ago on the, on the promise and the potential of the communications industry's ability to do good in the world. Our roots go back, if you want a quick history lesson, which I think is fascinating, right. to World War II. FDR was quite smart. And when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, he knew that he was going to have to bring the country into the war at which he had resisted. He called all of leaders of the communications industry to Washington to brief them on the war effort and ask them to basically develop ad campaigns to rally the country behind the idea that we had to go to war. Mm -hmm. So some of the early uh, results of that meeting were advertising around the, you, I'm sure you recall, loose lips sink ships. Yeah. All of the war bond advertising, that was all the early, they called it the War Advertising Council. There were these gardens that women, you know, would plant. Yeah, the yep, all of that was part of the War Advertising Council. And I think everybody recognized that they were so effective that when the war ended, the industry got together and basically said, let's form an, a permanent organization that takes on the most important and pressing issues facing the country using that same model where advertising agencies on a pro bono basis offer teams of, of their people to develop uh, ideas and strategies and creative around an issue. Media companies offer donated media to ensure that those messages get seen and heard by the right people at the right place and at the right time. Big brands helped fund those efforts. And that is the model that has existed for all of these years. I uh, read somewhere in preparing for this interview that if it were not pro bono, if, uh, if a marketer or brand wanted to pay for your ad equivalency, it'd be over $1.8 billion, that you would be the largest advertising client in the world. Is that a fair statement? Well, you know, I, I haven't done them. I, 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 I think it's, it would be huge. It would be huge. You know, we have at any given time, 30 different issues that we're working on. Last year, I think we garnered over a billion dollars just in donated media. And that doesn't count the, the time of the teams who are developing the creative. So yeah, I think it's, we would be among the largest advertisers in the country. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of those 30 ad campaigns, but first as an internationalist, I wonder what is there outside the U.S. that's either like the ad council or what work, if any, does ad council do outside the U.S.? Because it's such a powerful model, but perhaps the uniquely American model, I don't want to assume. Well, our focus is purely domestic, uh, has always been. You know, we've had conversations with folks outside of the U.S. Every country manages it differently, which I think is also why it's hard, it would be hard to get our hands around it. Some countries actually serve that role and bring the resources together through the government. Mm -hmm. Some have separate organizations, but there is no one model outside of the U.S., 
if there is an issue that obviously all of these issues that we deal with for the most part extend beyond our borders. You know, we might partner with the UN on some of their sustainable development goals where it makes sense and there's alignment. So we look for opportunities because we are all about collaboration, partnership, and bringing and and convening the right people to tackle these issues. Let's do a little uh, look back, talk a little about some vintage campaigns that I might've grown up with, and then some of the more current ones. For example, I want to believe that Smokey the Bear was one of yours. Is that? Yeah, I'm old, Toby, but I'm not that old. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Smokey Bear is the longest running PSA in history. It's as, as old as the Ad Council. In order to stay relevant and for Smokey to stay relevant, he has evolved because we used to fight forest fires and now we're fighting wildfires. He's got a huge social platform and is is out there in all kinds of cool ways. Like he's so retro cool right now. He's got a huge following. I'm sure you're familiar with our work um, with the United Negro College Fund. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Friends Don't Let Friends Drive Drunk is is ours. And then, of course, the classic Crying Indian for Keep America Beautiful for littering and pollution in the 70s. And then coming forward to today, say the past couple of years between George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, social justice, Black Lives Matter. Based on my research, I see you, you're focusing, look at my notes here, you've got disaster relief, community efforts, education, environment, health and wellness, safety. Are, are those the main buckets of your area? You know, again, we're pivoting our own model, trying to be much more agile and responsive as things happen in the world. And so we've done a lot around gun safety. You know, we've seen these horrific you know, mass shootings. But the truth of the matter is, I think the number is over 70% of deaths from guns happen because of guns that are not stored or locked up properly. Wow. And that results in suicides, it, 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 you know, unintended consequences of somebody finding a gun that's loaded. Children, I think it's one in eight, eight kids a day are killed or injured because of a gun they find. We've done a lot of work in that area and we're going to be doing more. COVID was, you know, obviously the biggest issue of our of our lifetime, you know, within five days of WHO declaring it a global pandemic, we were in the marketplace with information to help educate people on how do you take care of yourselves and your families, things like social distancing, which now is just part of our lexicon. We never heard of social distancing before. And then when we knew that our friends at Pfizer were developing a vaccine in record time, we were concerned. We were thrilled, of course, but we were quite concerned because when we looked at the data, we noticed that about half the country were hesitant about the vaccines. And so we felt that if we couldn't help educate people to make informed decisions based on facts and science about taking the vaccine or not. And they chose not to, if we didn't do that, then we wouldn't be any better off having had the vaccine. So we went and very quickly raised a significant amount of of money to fund the largest public education effort in our history. In that first year, the vaccine hesitancy focus that we had, that that 50% of people that were hesitant, you know, went down to probably eight or 9%. And obviously we didn't do all of that, but we had a, a, a huge role to play in that and brought together a massive coalition of partners who helped us. 
Amazing. We're going to give a shout out here to our mutual friend, Sally Sussman, as well at Pfizer, who, who was a guest on this show last year. And we talked a lot about that kind of issue. Ladies and gentlemen, again, today on The Caring Economy, we have with us Lisa Sherman. She is the president and chief executive officer of the Ad Council. Lisa, let's talk a little bit about measurement and impact. I would imagine that at the Ad Council, because of the nature of who you work with and what you do, you have probably best-in-class practices for measurement of impact. Can you talk a little bit about that? How do you measure the success of a campaign or campaigns in general? Absolutely. You know, everything we do is grounded in research and driven by very specific KPIs. Some of the work that, that we do is a little tougher to measure because we're trying to change hearts and minds. Whereas other things are much more specific. So as an example, for our Love Has No Labels campaign, which is focused on unconscious bias and creating awareness around our own unconscious bias, we took a baseline measure through a a tracking survey that we do. We're in the field 24-7 to ask very specific questions is, you know, how do you, are you aware of your own bias? Do you feel more open and accepting? And we've tracked that over time. Other campaigns that we have, whether we're asking people to take a test to determine if they might have pre-type 2 diabetes Mm -hmm. or take a scan for lung cancer because they were previously smokers, we can track very specifically how many people went and did that. The KPIs are tied to what what the campaign is trying to accomplish. Uh, some of that is qualitative, some of that is quantitative, but we, you know, we use the traditional marketing funnel, looking at exposure and awareness, engagement, and then ultimately impact, which is what we're trying to measure. And, and how much of your job is, I'll say development or fundraising in the sense that how much as CEO, are you going out and pitching CEOs of other organizations to get on board with a particular cause area? I would imagine that that's the biggest part of your job is to build consensus and support for a particular campaign. Is that a fair statement? You know, I think I wear a number of hats. Raising money in partnership with the amazing development team I have is one of them. The way our model currently works, typically we are partnering with a nonprofit or government agency who comes to us to say, would you take this on as an issue? So if you look at some of our health campaigns, we're partnering with the American Medical Association or the American Diabetes Association. They're the subject matter experts, and they provide a lot of that information to us. They also provide some funding for the hard costs that are required to produce the work. Agencies develop them pro bono, but you ultimately have to make something. When we work with a partner, we know they're bringing some funding to the campaign, but it's not enough to cover all of our costs. And so we are out fundraising. We have a big annual dinner every year that we put on. And and tell our listeners, if they want to be in touch with the Ad Council, they're curious about working with you, what's the best way to, to be in touch? Well, you can certainly go to our website and um, adcouncil.org, and there's a place in there to, um, you know, ask a question or to contact us. I think that's the best. And I would just encourage you to check out, you know, all of the work that we do on that site. Yeah. And if you see something you like, say it, right? Like you need to grow the, the impact that way as well on social and other ways. Absolutely. Can you say a little bit about your board in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion? Do you reflect the world in which you're operating? Do you feel 
that you've you've found the right balance and and how do you achieve that? <laughs> it's such a great question. I would say that we're definitely getting there, uh, but it's a work in progress. I will tell you about three or four years ago, our one of our board chairs said that she wanted for her goal, one of her goals, to increase the diversity of our board. And we've had a you know, a pretty aggressive effort to diversify every aspect of the organization internally through our employee bodies, the partners that we work with and our board. And so we set, you know, we did some analysis to determine what would be appropriate measures and milestones for us to try and hit. At the time we had 36% women on the board and we said we wanted to be 50-50 board. So we said 50% is our goal. We also, at the time, had only 8% of our board members as um, BIPOC. And so in looking at what the industry looked like um, and what what CMOs in particular looked like, um, we we set a fairly aggressive goal of 20%. I will tell you that we have not hit that goal yet, but we are at the moment at 17%, and it's a constant effort to really try and identify new members who can help diversify our board. I don't know if he's on your board, but one of our past guests here was uh, Damon Jones from PNG, Chief uh, Comms Officer. Astonishing what he's done and what they do. I'd be very happy to connect you. I will pick you up on that. He's been there for a couple of decades. And wow, they do a really great, in my view, practice of DEI in a matrixed global organization. So What's social justice in Japan is quite different from social justice Definitely. in the West, but through different products. Fascinating. I'll, I'll introduce you. And we've worked closely with Mark Pritchard, who's the chief brand officer of PNG. He was actually the chair of our board a couple of years back. But yeah, PNG is doing really, really uh, excellent work in this space. They're, they're changing the playbook. They're writing the playbook, actually, for Wait. what brands, I think, can do. Yeah, it's it's inspiring in a way that I would think for their employees, it's not a it's not an exercise. It's a it's a it's a collaborative celebration of purpose and business tapping together. I think so. Absolutely, who's loyal to some of their brands. Um, so that sense of optimism leads me to the next question. What, what has you optimistic about the sort of the state of public advocacy work, and and perhaps what what's got you sort of challenged or keeps you you know with your nose down. Well, let's talk about what makes me optimistic first, because there's lots of things that uh, yeah. are challenging. You know, I think there's two things that come to mind for me. The first is that I, I was thrilled a number, when, when uh, maybe two or three years ago, that the BRT, the Business Roundtable, yeah. redefined the purpose of a corporation. And instead of just focusing on shareholders, they basically said that our job is to focus on all stakeholders employees, our partners, our suppliers, and the communities that we serve. And I am extraordinarily optimistic about the way many, many, many companies are stepping into this new thinking about their role in society. Mm -hmm. Because I think they're, um, as we just saw in the most recent Edelman Trust Barometer, Corporations are among, I think, at the top of the list of the most trusted groups right now. People trust their CEOs and their leadership. 
And I think that their capacity and their ability to really help tackle these big corporate, these big societal issues uh, is, is not to be understated. So that makes me very optimistic. We've, you know, given all of our partners are these companies, I have seen firsthand what they're capable of. And not just because they have the resources financially, but their reach is so broad. Their footprints are so deep, um, both internally looking at their, engaging their employees and externally in the communities that they serve. It's, it's a very potent combination. So I'm super optimistic about that. And then I'm very optimistic about, you know, young people. You know, I don't know that I was as aware or I was my ability to articulate and then lean into the things that I really care about the way I see so many young people today. Like it's their table stakes. They will not work for a company that is not aligned with their values and takes on the things that they care about. They're, and they're, you know, they're customers. Uh, they are, they're consumers. So they're a powerful voice. They're, they're at the end of the day, they have a lot to say and we need to listen. Yeah, their intentions are honorable, I think. So 100%. Yeah. And do you want to give any example of something that's keeping you up at night or we can How about everything, Toby? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you well, know, Ukraine, you're doing a lot around Ukraine, I know, and that's just Yeah, we've um, you know, look, when your your mission is to take on the most important and pressing issues facing the country and every day you wake up and there's something else happening, it's a lot. And you know, one of the things that we're really going to be doubling down on right now is the whole area of mental health, which is been an issue. We've been working in that mental health space for a number of years, but I think the pandemic just ripped open, you know, uh, this issue in a way that really brought it to the top. And I think exacerbated what was already existing Absolutely. And it's everywhere. It touches everyone. Um, and of course, as with so many issues, it also, I think, uh, disproportionately uh, impacts um, underserved communities and communities of color. Yeah. Um, so saw, there's a ton of work to do there. I saw a nice little two minute reel on your site about uh, a young girl, I think in Michigan, a gymnast, they're dealing with mental health issues. So kudos to you for that. In that same spirit, my last question for you, Lisa Sherman, is uh, what about your own sort of uh, work-life balance and, and healthy mindset? How do you and, and your wife, Julie, how do you kind of keep that balance and stay positive? <laughs> that is also a tough question. I, you know, I think this idea of balance is just the wrong, I think it's the wrong word. Um, I've heard some people refer to it as integration, work-life integration. You know, I think for me, some some days I'm not balanced at all because work requires it. Some days my personal life or our, you know, our daughter requires it. I think it's really just making sure that you take time to check in with yourself, that I check in with myself. So I'm trying to work out more and just take care of uh, myself that way. On the weekends, I really try and make sure if it's not the whole weekend, because that's probably not realistic, I'm taking a day or a day and a half to just close my computer and walk away and be outside and do something that I love and to recharge. Like I just, I find that I need to recharge for myself, 
Julie and I need to recharge together. And it's just trying to make sure we're taking that time. Certainly work like yours at the Ad Council or even my podcast, these are purposeful in a way that I think somehow does help rejuvenate, right? If you're doing something that's serving a higher purpose, it's serving others, and it somehow doesn't drain in the same way as perhaps a function or a role that's not serving a higher purpose. So I share that with you. Yeah, for sure. There's not a day that I get up that I'm not feeling excited and energized about the work ahead for the day. And I feel very honored to get to do that work. So awesome. Well, Lisa Sherman, CEO and president of the Ad Council, thank you so much for coming on The Caring Economy, and I hope you'll be back. Thanks, Toby. It's always great to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at tusnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.